I'm, uh, I'm Anton Hoffman, privileged to be a pastor here and privileged to be presenting God's Word at this time. Where are you going? And what are you doing in the meantime? Samuel Beckett in 1949 wrote a play called, called Waiting for Godot. Wikipedia calls it the most significant play of the 20th century. And it asks this existential question, where are you going and what are you doing in the meantime? In the play, two tramps, Estragon and Vladimir, are waiting by a sickly-looking tree for a certain Monsieur Godot. They divert themselves as best they can while they wait expectantly on this someone. They confess they hardly know him, and they say if he walked by, we wouldn't recognize him. To occupy themselves... They eat a carrot, gnaw on a chicken bone, sleep, talk, argue, make up. One tries to commit suicide, anything, so as to hold the terrible silence at bay. And silence is a great feature of the play. In fact, in extremely long Pauses take place where communication breaks down completely. It's called the most significant play of the last century and you can see why. Because it describes the human dilemma in such a graphic way. Our own profound philosopher, Yogi Berra, (laughs) encapsulated the same dilemma in these words... If you come to a fork in the road, take it. And you remember in the book Alice in Wonderland, Alice asks the mad hatter, which way should I go? And he says, well, where are you going? And she says, I don't know. He says, well, then it doesn't matter which way you go. And here we are then waiting, as it were, at a crossroads, and it doesn't matter where we're going. It sort of talks about our world that exists in a vacuum of uncertainty. There's no purpose to it, no purpose to its work, except maybe to make your waiting a bit more comfortable. You know, buy cushions for the bench and fertilize the tree so that when you try and hang yourself, the branch won't break. (laughs) That's the reality of the world without God. It doesn't know where it's going and what it's doing in the meantime is totally and totally uh, inappropriate. And so their budgets are driven by advertising. Got to have the latest big screen TV. They suppress all anxiety over the future by trusting medical science to find some answer to the dilemma of dying. They are interested only in what satisfies their immediate needs. You know, gnaw on the carrot and chew on a chicken bone. That's about all that there is to life. 
And now in a contrast that could not possibly be more startling, the Apostle Paul brings us to the ministry of Jesus and highlights the fact that God has given us purpose and that God has drawn us into his purpose. Hear these words from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 to 23. They are preceded, you remember, with the fact that Jesus exercises his power on behalf of those who believe and in those who believe. And in that power, God exalted him and raised him to his own right hand in heavenly places far above all power and dominion and majesty and might and every name that can be named not only in this world but also which is in the world to come and then these words and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. One Sunday night I came home from preaching the evening service and my wife Shando said, you need to go downtown to a hotel immediately. I've been on the phone with a man threatening to commit suicide in obedience to voices, and I told him to hold off until you got there. Uh, I had a deacon with me, and we left right away. We knocked on the door of the room, and he yelled, Go away! I knocked again, and he said he was not opening this door. And this little game we played for about 15 minutes until I thought, Well, I'm fed up. No way to spend a Sunday night if I'm exhausted. And I was going to leave and I thought I'll try one last thing. And so I said, in the name of Jesus, open this door. And immediately it opened. The deacon and I sat on one of the twin beds in the room and he sat on the other one. And then he described the voices that were trying to seduce him. One, he said, was a silky female voice, very seductive. The room was littered with trays. He had obviously been holed up there for quite a while and been receiving room service but never putting anything for clearing. He said he had spent a lot of time over the weekend on the ledge of the window resisting the call of the voices to jump. I said, I'm afraid I can't help you, but I know someone who can. And the deacon tried to melt into the bedspread and his head shrank into his shoulders because he thought I might be calling on him. (laughs) And then I said, the person who can help you is Jesus. Here is the place of his authority in the universe and I flipped open to these words and I read them to him. 
And then I said, here is how it would be demonstrated in this situation. And I was going to flip through the Gospels and try and find a place where Jesus casts out a demon, which might have taken anything from 60 to 90 seconds. But my Bible fell open. And the first words that caught my eye were these from Luke chapter 4, verse 33 onwards. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do we want to do with you? And what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? Notice these words. With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. I said, let's pray. I began by exalting Jesus in his power. I thanked him for exercising his power and authority. And before I could proceed any further, the man fell off the bed and lay on his back between the two beds. The deacon leapt over onto the other bed and I pulled my feet up onto this bed and we were looking down into the face of evil and out of his throat came this hideous terrifying gargling noise as if he were choking and yet speaking through it the deacon wanted to restrain him because he reached out in that prone position over his head and picked up the heavy nightstand and hurled it across the room and I said leave him let's pray And so we continued to thank Jesus for his power and asked him to exercise his authority. And gradually the gurgling subsided. And after about 15 minutes, he began to thank and praise God and Jesus in particular. He calmed down completely and on his face a look of total disbelief and of relief. And joy and peace. Yes, it's not theory that Jesus exercises power, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come. Power over everything. It is actually exercised. And now God draws us into this power and authority. So that in communion with Jesus, we, the body of Christ, have got significance in our lives. We're not just waiting at a crossroads. The picture that Paul paints in these words is actually a very nice, simple word picture. In it, Christ is the head. That means over everything, exalted, Authority, power, nourishment, 
source, everything you can think of in terms of your head, Christ is. The church is his body. This both means the church, wherever it is gathered to the ends of the world, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, wherever people congregate in the name of Jesus and worship God for the sake of hearing his word, of practicing the discipline of his life, and of celebrating the two sacraments, there his body is. And I remind you that the apostle wrote this to the church gathered in Ephesus. And we can therefore say it is written to us, the congregation of Jesus gathered in Kirkwood. And then to complete the picture, he says, all things are under my, his feet and all of this for this that he may accomplish his purpose. Now, I don't know exactly how all of this fits together. I can just tell you that it is one of the most startling and amazing statements that could ever be made that in some way or another, Jesus is incomplete without Green Tree Church. I don't know exactly how that works, but I believe it because I see it in operation and because I am thrilled to be part of God's purpose here in Kirkwood and that without this, Jesus would not be manifesting his fullness in our world. So let's ask ourselves three simple questions. Why? Why did God stage this immense drama called salvation and draw us to be the body of Jesus? Why did he do that? Secondly, how? How does God make it happen? And thirdly, what? What exactly does that mean for us? So first of all then, why? And this is a question inviting consideration of purpose. Why did God bother? I mean, think what it meant. Jesus leaving his glory, his only begotten son dying like a common criminal, not dying, executed. And then the manifest power of God in raising him from the dead, exalting him to his right hand, and giving him rule and authority over every power and dominion and might that might be named, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come. Now the tendency is to make this very personal and say, well, God did it for me. And he sure did. But if I cannot translate that thought into something much bigger, I am very close to being guilty of immense arrogance. The gospel is not self-centered. It is Christ-centered. And so in three places in this very epistle that we are studying these five Sundays, the apostle tells us why God did it. 
in Ephesians 1 and verse 14, having started off the epistle with a great doxology praising God for our election and of the work of the Holy Spirit and of our salvation, he ends up and he says, why? Well, to the praise of his glory. That's why he did it. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7, after the apostle has again expounded the fact that our history is submerged and the history of Jesus becomes our new spiritual history so that we have this new passport given to us, he tells us why. So that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And immediately we get the idea that there is this physical world, but the context is a spiritual world. And in the age to come, God wants to manifest his grace and his glory, the exceeding riches of his kindness And therefore he got involved in the drama of our sin and of our rebellion, not for our sakes, for his sake. And in Ephesians 3.21, which we have said is the beating heart of this epistle, sending a pulse into every word, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So you were saved for the glory of God. And specifically you were drawn into the purpose of God because the church, which is us, congregated here under the authority of Jesus, the church is the fullness of him who fills everything, the entire universe. He fills it in every way and in everything. And in some mysterious way, we are the fullness of Jesus. So let's just ask, The second of these questions, that was the first one. Now, how? How does God make it happen? I don't know whether you sort of are overwhelmed by the hugeness and the the immensity of this all. When I thought about it, I felt like a dewdrop trembling on a redwood tree overlooking the Pacific Ocean feeling here I am, this little drop, and there is God and his purpose, this infinite ocean. And so the thought may come to you, well, in order to be the fullness of Jesus, I had a better step up to doing some miracles. And if I can't do them, then I can't possibly fulfill the scripture, so you might find it actually discouraging. So is it some huge dramatic thing that God is asking of you right now? Well, let's look at two scriptures. The first one in Matthew 7 verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not 
prophesy in your name. And in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Whoa. An evildoer doing miracles and prophesying and driving out demons in the name of Jesus? Well, you see, what it means is this. If you are relying on those things to get you into heaven, then you are still an evildoer, although God can use you in these incredible ways. If I took that one experience of casting out a demon and turned it into a ministry and said, here is Anton Hoffman who can drive out demons and started getting funds and building an empire, of course Jesus would say, Away from me, you evildoer. Rather, in Matthew 25, Jesus gives an entirely different picture, and this is in accord with Ephesians, where Paul says in chapter 6 and verse 23 that it is love with faith that achieves, achieves this purpose. So Matthew 25, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I needed clothes and, and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the righteous answer, you see, they're unconscious of this, not like the first incident. And the righteous answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it for me. So, it's these simple things, and that's who we are looking out for. We are looking out. And to encourage you in the thought that it's something very simple, you will find on the edge of each row on the aisle seat and on the far right-hand aisle seat, a little Tupperware box, if those there don't mind getting it out. And in it is an envelope with a card. And won't you each take a card and pass the box down? And here's what I want you to do to be the fullness of Jesus in your world. 
Ask God who needs a word from you today. It may be a word of forgiveness. It may be that you need to write a word of encouragement. I don't know how the Holy Spirit will lead you, but by the simple writing of a card and mailing it, you will be able to understand a little bit more what it means to be the fullness of Jesus in your world. And then let me tell you about how Green Tree is the fullness of Jesus in our world. There's a team coming back from Ireland overnight, I think, or tomorrow. They've been the fullness of Jesus in Belfast for a week. We have those who go to Russia and support an orphanage in Russia. We have a team who went to Africa and we worked in the slums in Cape Town and visited with people dying of AIDS, went into their shacks, heard their story and prayed with them. We have a team that goes to Kenya every year. Next Sunday, a team will be commissioned by us to go to Honduras. We go locally to Lydia House. We have our days of service in the church. And then you have contact every day, and I'll bring this out in the conclusion, where you may manifest the fullness of Jesus in your world. So let's ask the third question, what? What does it mean for us? And I quote this from Bill Hybels in his book, Courageous Leadership. He says, I had just finished presenting my weekend message at Willow, and I was standing talking to people. A young married couple approached me, placed a blanketed bundle in my arms, and asked me to pray for them. As I asked what the baby's name was, the mother pulled back the blanket that covered the infant's face. I felt my knees begin to buckle. I thought I was going to faint. Had the father not reached out to steady me, I may have keeled over. For in my arms was the most hideously deformed infant I had ever seen. The whole center of her tiny face was caved in she kept breathing I will never know all I could say was oh my oh my oh my her name is Emily said the mother we've been told she's got about six weeks to live added the father we would like you to pray that before she dies she will know and feel our love as coming from God. Barely able to mouth the words, I whispered, let's pray. And together we prayed for Emily. Oh, how we prayed. As I handed her back to her parents, I asked, is there anything we can do for you? any way that we as a church can serve you during this time. 
the father responded with words that still amaze me. He said, Bill, we're okay. Really, we are. We've been in a loving small group for years. Our group members knew that this pregnancy had complications. They were at our house the night we learned the news. And they were at the hospital when Emily was delivered. They helped us absorb the shock of the whole thing. They even cleaned our house and fixed our meals when we brought her home. They pray for us constantly. We get calls from them every day. They are helping us in every way. And then he writes these very powerful words. There is nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources to those in need and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addictions, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of this this world. Whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. Still to this day, the potential of the local church is almost more than I can grasp. No other organization on earth is like the church. Nothing even comes close. And now you know why. And now you know you're part of it. So let's conclude. Where are you going? You've just been waiting around on the park bench. The boss, Bruce Springsteen, sang, Everybody's got a hungry heart. Mine is and yours is and your neighbor's is. Everybody. And the Rolling Stones with their perfect grammar said, I can't get no satisfaction. And Britney Spears sang the same song. So where are you going? And I think the first thing that happened to me as I pondered this afresh for myself was this, I was shaken to the core because of the way in which I tend to trivialize the church. I was shaken to the core because sometimes I come to worship to get and not to give. I was shaken because so often my days are made up in a buzz of self-centeredness and I've got no thought for the glory of God. 
Because so often when my life is interrupted, I complain. I mean, you should see me at the railway lines in Kirkwood. And when I get a neighbor who irritates me. Or a person with a bad attitude. But all of these are God's gift to me. Yeah, even the railway line. Because I can take the moment to commune or I can sit and gnash my teeth. And so every day, every opportunity is given to us and I am shaken to the core that I let God down so badly. But then some thrilling electricity goes through my entire being. Oh God, I've got such a great purpose. I'm committed to such a great group of people. They really love you. I hear constantly the story of that couple in Willow Creek. I get by in my pain and in my circumstances because the body of Christ is around me. So I want to ask you, are you availing yourself of every way? Because in every way the church is the fullness of Jesus. I went through the Stephen Minister's training and I'm very proud and honored to wear this nameplate. And I want to tell you that in 50 hours of work this year, I got more pastoral training than I got in four years of seminary. So are you availing yourself? Maybe that's what God is calling you to. If you are lonely and isolated and struggling, ask for a Stephen minister. They are trained to listen, not to fix you, but to hear you and to pray with you and encourage you. Are you availing yourself of the small group ministries in our church, community groups, cares groups? of the mission trips that will expand your horizon. I came back from South Africa as a different man. God rewires your brain when you go into a shack and visit with a woman trembling with cold and dying of AIDS in her poverty. Isolated, shunned by her community, but being drawn into a body of Christ. You come back very grateful and changed after that. This is how we could break it down, if you like. Scandinavian Airlines in somewhere around the late 80s or early 90s was at the bottom of the heap for customer satisfaction. And a new CEO came on board and he said, in one year, we're going to be the top. And everybody sniggered and laughed and shrugged him off. And then he said, this is how we can do it. I estimate that each employee has on average six customer contacts a day. Obviously, some have a lot more. Uh, the baggage handler maybe has none. <laughs> but he said, every one of them can be a point of light for our clients. And we have 10,000 points of light a day. 
Imagine if each one of them were harvested. And so he trained each one of his personnel how to be a point of light in customer satisfaction. And one year later, Scandinavian Airlines was on the top. He turned it around with a very simple concept. General Motors once estimated that each of their employees had 123 significant contacts every week. So let's take those two statistics. We have about 450 regular attendance congregants at this congre- in this congregation. We got visitors that come and casuals that come and go. But 450 committed people. Every one of them with, let's say, 123 opportunities to be the fullness of Jesus every week. How many points of fullness does that make? I had to get out my calculator because my wife is always teasing me. Sometimes I can't get 20 times 30 right. 55,350 points of fullness every week if every one of us goes forth in the consciousness and in the energy of Christ and does not see people as interruptions to our lives but opportunities that God placed there. Yes, the whining neighbor That difficult boss, that impossible employee, that horrible workmate, God put them there for you, just for you. We are the fullness of Jesus in our society.